0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm not sure what you think of when you think about Christmas, and I'm not sure what you feel when you think about Christmas, but we all have experienced Christmas in different ways at different times in our lives. Uh, When I think about Christmas in my childhood, uh, I think about how my parents and I, uh, we would start on Christmas Eve because Christmas Eve was always super busy. Uh, We had lots of things to do, lots of places to go, and lots of people to see. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we would leave Middlesbrough and we would head up Highway 119, and just on this side of the Harlan County line, we would stop in a little community called Blackmont, which is where my mom's parents lived. And so we would go to my grandparents' house, and we would wait for all my aunts and uncles and cousins to converge on my grandparents' house. And it would be loud and it would be crowded. And, and inevitably, we would have to wait for the part of the family that can never be where they're supposed to be at on time. And we had to wait on them in order you know, to open the gifts. And, and when you know, the time to open gifts came, I would get my gift from my grandparents and then my gift from an aunt or uncle who drew my name in, in the gift swap. And then we would get in the car and we would jet back towards Middlesboro and we'd stop at my great-grandparents' house. And then after that, we would go to my grandparents' house on my dad's side, his parents, and we would wrap up the night after that at our house. And, and that was kind of Christmas Eve for years. And then my brother came along and, and that changed the way we experienced Christmas a little bit. And then my mom's parents, they passed away. And, and many of you have experienced that when the patriarch or the matriarch of a family uh, passes away, uh, lots of times the family, the next generation begins to disperse and they do Christmas uh, their own way with their own family. And that's to be that's to be expected. And, and perhaps that's the way it's supposed, supposed to be. I can remember when my great grandfather died, we stopped going to my great grandparents in Middlesboro, uh, my great grandmother moved in with my grandparents and, and Christmas changed a little bit there. I can think back to the Christmas when my grandfather had cancer and, and, and I look back at that particular Christmas as he, he was fighting against cancer and, and he's doing well today. This, this was over a decade ago and, and I think of that Christmas where everybody seemed to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more thankful and a little bit more prayerful. And it's one of my favorite Christmases. And, and then there's been just different things. New babies have entered the family. You know, Alice and I, we've had kids. My brother, uh, he's got children and there's new life. And, and we experience Christmas differently because there are seasons in life and there are chapters within those seasons that not only affect how we experience our life, but it also affects how we experience this particular season of the year. Matter of fact, think about it this way. How we experience Christmas is often connected to what has happened to us and what is happening around us. Now that can be good or bad. Some of you, the best memories you have, it's connected to Christmas. Some of you, the most painful memories that you have, it's connected to Christmas. For others, both are connected to Christmas. Uh, Some of you, when you think about Christmas, you think of the most beautiful time of the year. Some of you think about the most stressful time of the year. Maybe this year, uh, you're dreading it because it seems like it's gonna be the most painful time of the year. And then there's still some of you uh, that would say, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, some of you will end the Christmas you know, season here at the end of December, and, and you're going to wonder where it all went. You know, where did the time go? Where did the money go? Where, where did our waistlines go? Where, where did it all go? What happened? A- a- and at the end of the season of peace and joy, you'll end with neither. And instead of feeling full at the end of it, you'll feel empty. But here's my question for you. What if Christmas could become the most full of wonder and full of meaning time of the year? What if Christmas could become the most wonderful and most meaningful time of the year? And not only this season, but all the seasons that would come after it. And not because of what happened to you or what's happening around you, but because of what happened for you the first Christmas when a baby was born in the town of Bethlehem, out there among the hills of Judea as the son of a virgin And the adopted son of a carpenter, a savior, was born. Jesus was born. And then the world changed. What if what happened for you that first Christmas could make this Christmas full of wonder and full of meaning like it's never been before? Because I think it can be. And I think it should be. When it comes to Jesus, there are four biographies of his life. We call them gospels, but I think it's helpful to think of them as biographies. They're historical biographies. We call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We say it's the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but I think it's most helpful for us to remember that those documents were made to be biographies of the life and the times of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a historical figure. Now, among Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only three of them refer to his birth. Mark doesn't even refer to the birth of Jesus. He assumes that we all know that Jesus was born and that he just picks up with the story of Jesus's ministry and his miracles and he's off to the races. Matthew and Luke, they give us the historical account of Jesus. They tell us important things like this, that Jesus was descended from Abraham. That's important to know. That he was descended from King David. Again, that's important to know. That Jesus was born within a very specific historical context. Somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC, it was during the time when Herod was king of Judea, it was during the time when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and Octavian, otherwise known as Caesar Augustus, was the emperor of Rome. And Matthew and Luke said that's when Jesus was born. That's the historical context. But John, one of the other biographical writers for the life of Jesus, he deals with Christmas in a much different way, with, with a much broader perspective, a deeper perspective, with a wide angle lens. He approaches the Christmas story in a much different way. Now, if you don't know anything about John the Apostle, there's two main Johns you know that we find in the gospels, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, and John the Baptist that you've probably heard him referred to as. It's better, John the Baptizer. But John, the disciple of Jesus, he decided at the end of a long day of fishing to be a follower of Jesus. It's a great story. I don't have time to tell you. But that big decision, which probably felt like a small decision when he decided to follow Jesus, secured his spot in history forever. Because he didn't know it, but he was becoming one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. He was becoming what would become known as one of the apostles of Jesus. This was John who decided to follow Jesus. Ultimately, he's gonna become a leader of the church. But before that, he's gonna be part of the inner circle of Jesus. He's going to be among the 12, but there's going to be three among the 12, which kind of got special access to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Here's something you may not know about John the disciple. He was a cousin of Jesus, and so was John the baptizer. So I imagine Jesus had to introduce them at the holidays as this is my cousin John, and this is my other cousin John. And and John the baptizer was Jesus' cousin, and so was John. John the disciple had a brother named James. They were the sons of Zebedee. Their mother... Their mother was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. And so there's a connection there. It was Jesus' cousin, John, and John, that was his cousin. Now, I say that to say this to all of us. What would it have taken for any of your cousins at any point in their life to convince you they were the son of God? (laughs) Some of you have cousins that think they are the son of God, but they are not. So here's John who came to believe that his cousin, A guy that he grew up with around the Sea of Galilee, he played with perhaps. He came to believe that he was the son of God. And John became a follower of his cousin, Jesus. And he had a front row seat to his ministry, his his message, his miracles. He saw it all. John was there that day at Golgotha as Jesus, his cousin, the one that he followed, died on a cross. He He was there when they buried the body of Jesus. He was hiding out after the death of Jesus when the women came and said, hey, we went to the tomb this morning and the body of Jesus is missing. And then John became a witness of the resurrected Jesus. He had breakfast with Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's when he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. Not because it was something that he believed. It was something he saw. He saw the miracles He heard the message, he saw him die, he saw him come back to life and he said, that's my savior, that's my Lord. And so towards the end of the first century, somewhere around the 90s, Matthew's already written his biography, Mark has written his, and Luke has written his. The last biography to be written that's contained in our New Testament is by John. And John sits down, picks up a pen or dictated it to someone else who wrote it for him, we don't know which, but it could have been either. He told his story of Jesus in a much different way. He wanted to make sure that the world knew about Jesus. He wanted to make sure that future generations knew about Jesus. And and more specifically, he wanted to make sure that you and I knew about Jesus. So he writes his biography. And at the end of the biography, here is what John says. He said, this is why I'm writing it. Jesus performed many other signs. Everybody say signs. In the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John's gonna record eight major sign miracles that Jesus performed in the view of the public and in the view of his disciples because here's what John understood about faith. And some of you, you don't know this about faith and you need to know this about faith. Faith is not a blind, uninformed step, an ignorant step into the darkness. No, that's not what faith is. Faith is an informed, enlightened step forward towards Jesus based on evidence. Faith is supposed to be based on evidence. And John said, I don't want you to take a step in the direction of Jesus out of ignorance or out of a lack of information. I want you to take a step in the direction of Jesus because of evidence. So I'm going to make a case that Jesus is who he said he was. And he gives us all these miracles to give weight to who Jesus claimed to be. And so he goes on, he says, but these things are written that purpose.'" that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John said, "Here's, here's why I'm writing. I'm writing so that unbelievers will read this biography and become believers. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you, I dare you to start reading the gospel of John because John said, the entire reason that I'm writing this biography is so that unbelievers will read it and become believers. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, you should continue to read the gospel of John so that your faith gets even stronger. He says, I'm writing this so that non-believers become believers. I am an eyewitness. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you should ask yourself, why would John lie? Why would John write about this? FBI profilers say that people really only make up lies for three reasons. It's sex, power, or money. John didn't get any of that. That's not the reason he wrote it. It cost him more than it got him. He was an eyewitness and he wants you and me to be confronted with Jesus. So he's gonna tell the story in a larger, deeper, wider way than Matthew, Mark or Luke told their story of Jesus. And so he's gonna introduce us to his friend, his cousin, his savior, his Lord. And he's going to write a prologue. He's going to borrow something from the Greek writers. He's going to write a prologue to his biography in John chapter 1, which we're going to look at in just a moment. And a prologue was was this part of a story which was like the story before the story. It establishes the narrative before the main narrative. It it gives context to the main character. It, It gives us a point of reference. And so John, he's going to borrow something from the Greeks and he's going to throw in a prologue so that we know what the rest of the book is about and here's what he's going to teach us. He's going to teach us that the invisible God has become a visible person and his name is Jesus and John said he so happened to be my friend my cousin my Savior and my Lord and I want to tell you about him and this is how he starts the story he says in the beginning was the word and so John he he begins in this epic fashion he begins with the beginning of all beginnings which he's gonna tell us and we're gonna find out, which is really not a beginning at all because it's really infinity and you can't put an absolute measurement on infinity. So it's like the beginning of beginnings, which is not a beginning at all. Which you gotta be impressed that a fisherman from Galilee could come up with something like that. He said, I'm gonna tell you the story of Christmas, but it's gonna start before Bethlehem. It's gonna start before a manger, before shepherds. I'm gonna begin with the beginnings of all beginnings, which is really not a beginning at all. It's actually eternity. It's actually infinity. And so John could say this, once upon a timeless time, and once upon a spaceless place, at a time when there was no time, in a place where there was no space, there was the word. In the beginning, before the beginning of all beginnings, was the Word. And he uses a term in the Greek, logos. In the beginning was the logos. And again, he's talking to us about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was logos. And John does something. It's fascinating. This is is just mind-blowing to me. He doesn't wanna start by establishing the birth of Jesus. He wants to start the story of Christmas by establishing that Jesus existed before he was born. So John would say, okay, let me tell you the story. Before the beginning of all beginnings, Jesus was. As the country preacher said, Jesus was already a was Some of you are so proper, you can't even wrap your mind around that. You're gonna struggle for the rest of the message. I'm just saying. That before the beginning of all beginnings, Jesus was. And so he uses the term logos. And let me just teach you a little bit about this because this is such a big deal. John is writing to a Jewish and Greek audience. And he wants to use a word that will capture both audiences. And so he uses a term that was known to Jewish theology and Greek philosophy, logos. Now for the Greeks, the Greeks first started talking about this word, this logos idea, 600 years before Jesus ever showed up on the pages of history, Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, he began to postulate that the logos was this impersonal divine reasoning or plan behind all of the coordinated universe. Even 600 years before Jesus was born, Greek philosophers looked around and said, you know what? The universe seems to be ordered. Ordered. The universe seems to be designed, and if there is a design, then the logical conclusion is there must be an intelligent designer. And so Heraclitus said, okay, we're going to call this impersonal, intelligent designer logos. Now, the Stoics came along in history and in Greek philosophy, and they said, well, the logos has infiltrated all of visible reality. There's nothing in the material world that has not been infiltrated by this impersonal force called the Logos. Plato, you've heard of him, right? He said that the Logos was imminent, but yet transcendent. So what does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds good. And it made sense to him. And they came from all around to listen to him talking about how it's close by, but yet it's beyond us, it's transcendent. Aristotle came along and said, the Lagos is an impersonal force that gives shape and life to the universe. So that's how the Greeks processed this idea of Lagos. But for the Jews, when the Jews heard the term Lagos, because they used the term as well, they thought of God's power to create. They thought of God's power to intervene. They thought of the spoken words of God. When, when the Jews thought about Lagos, they thought about Genesis 1 and verse 1. That in the beginning, God created. And how did God create in the beginning? God said God spoke, let there be life. That's what Jewish people thought when they thought of Lagos. They thought of Psalms 33 at verse six. By the words of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the starry heavens, the breath of his mouth. By his word, it was made and at his command, it was settled. That's what they thought about. They thought of great passages like Psalms 148 that says, praise him, the highest heavens. Praise Him, angels. Praise Him, sun, moon, and stars. Praise Him, water above the earth. For the Lord has commanded you to exist. So that's what they thought about. And so, John. John says, what Greek philosophy has been postulating about and what Jewish theology they've been trying to articulate, what they have been afraid to give their minds to because they wanted to keep God separate from any personalization because they were so afraid of turning God into a figure or an image and, and being guilty of committing idolatry. So they were very careful. And John, a fisherman from Galilee says, what Greek philosophy has been searching for, the mind behind the universe, what Jewish theology has suspected to be true, the power of God to create. It is all found in one person, Jesus. Now if that doesn't impress you about a guy who fished for a living, I don't know what will. This is John saying that in the beginnings of all beginnings was the word, the logos, the designer behind the design, the intelligence behind an intelligent creation. That everything Greek philosophy has been looking for, Everything that Jewish theology has been searching for is found in Jesus. And it says in the word was with God. That the word, the logos, Jesus was the same essence of God, but yet he was different from God. And John is thinking to himself, they're so not going to get this. See, we love to talk about Jesus and we love to keep him in the box and we love to keep him at a size that we can put in our pocket, that we can stick on a shelf and we love to talk about the things that he did and the things that he said. But John said, no, 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 no. I need to show you that in the beginning of all beginnings, before there was anything, there was Lagos. He was with God and he was God. Make no mistake about it, that in the beginning, before the beginning, There was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was distinct. He was different from God. He was the same essence, though, as God, and he was God. You say, Trevor, my eyes are crossing, and John says, that's what I hope would happen. Because you don't want a God that allows you to see straight. You want a God that's so big and so great that it crosses your eyes, that your finite imagination, your finite intellect cannot fully grasp how big God is. And John said, that's where we've got to start at. This is how you need to be introduced to Jesus, that Jesus is the timeless and spaceless God who exists outside of time and space and eternity, who made time and space that before there was anything, Jesus was everything. That he existed in a state of infinity, and infinity is not even something we can, we can think about. We get tired. We can't even go back so far. Thousands of years is difficult for us to process. But to a time before time, to a place before space, John said, if you could think back that far, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now. John, he says this in the very beginning, but Jesus had affirmed this idea as well throughout his ministry and throughout his life. And, and John wrote about some of them. You might remember Jesus the night that he's gonna be you know, arrested before he's gonna be crucified the next day. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's stressed, he's, he's anxious because of what's about to happen to him, the suffering, the cross. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and his sweats gonna become his great drops of blood. And he takes Peter, James, and John And they go to pray. And Jesus goes a little bit further, but apparently John was close enough to eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer time. And as he listens to Jesus pray, John is sitting there, and he hears Jesus say these words that are recorded in the biography of John chapter 17. Jesus said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before The world began and John was there in the garden. I gotta write this down. I have to write this down. Peter, wake up. You got a pen, right? I need to write this down. One day Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they were arguing. The Pharisees were very proud that they were descendants of Abraham and they thought that they were special because they were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus kind of just throws out the trump card. Jesus throws down the gauntlet. Jesus says, listen, let me tell you, you're impressed about Abraham, but let me tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying before Abraham walked the planet, 1600 or so years before, I already was. John the baptizer, he shows up and says, there's Jesus, I've come to prepare his way. He was, he's coming after me, but he is actually before me. Now the thing about John the baptizer Jesus' cousin, he was six months older than Jesus. So, how did Jesus come before him if he's six months older? Because Jesus has always been. There's never been a time when Jesus wasn't. That Jesus in the beginning was the Word, He was with God, He was God. And John says, listen, I wish I could tell you that before the sun was ever spoken into existence, before there was light in this universe, Jesus was already the light of the world. Before the hillsides were ever formed and before wheat ever grew out there in the pastures, Jesus was already the bread of life. Before humanity ever occupied a place on this planet, before sin ever showed up, Jesus was already the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He's bigger than what you think he is. He's greater than what you've been willing to acknowledge. He is a big God. He is a mighty Savior. And this is where his story begins. And and so next week, we're going to talk about how John's saying that everything that's true of Jesus is true of God. And everything that's true of God is true of Jesus. Some of you have a bad idea of what God's like. Your church taught you wrong. Your parents taught you wrong. Your granny taught you wrong. And I know they loved you. And they didn't mean to steer you wrong, but some of you got an unhealthy view of God. And the reason that you can know you have an unhealthy view of God, it doesn't look a lot like Jesus. And if your view of God doesn't look a lot like Jesus, you have a bad view of God. Come back next week, all right? So John, he's given us this, and he's trying to get us to understand. And then he goes on. He says, "He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, there it is. And through him, all things. Everybody say, all things." were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. John says, look around to his first century audience. And all they could do was look around with their naked eye. Everything that you can see has been made by him. Nothing that was made was made apart from him. In our 21st century sophisticated ability to see, he invites us to look macroscopically, microscopically, He tells us to look through the telescopes to the furthest reaches of space, to pick up the electron microscope, to see the things that we could never be able to see on a subatomic particle level. And he says, everything that was made was made by him. And this is where science and scripture agrees that there was a beginning to all of this. John says there was a beginning, and so does science. Now, science didn't always believe that there was a beginning. Science, once upon a time, just a few decades ago, believed that the universe was eternal until Einstein's, you know, his theory of relativity, and then Edwin Hubble discovered cosmic background radiation, and then there was galaxy seeds discovered by a NASA satellite, and I don't have time to tell you about all that important stuff, but what science has determined is that the universe has a beginning, and that is a big deal. Matter of fact, science says that if you could take what is an ever-expanding universe, that space itself. This is space itself is expanding. You're not getting it. Space itself is expanding. We can't even grasp this. It's not that, that we are spilling out into space, that space itself is expanding after what science calls the Big Bang 13 billion years ago, that space is expanding. And science says that if you could press reverse and see the universe fall back on itself, collapse back on itself, it would come to the size, not of a golf ball, not of a period, not of a pinhead, but to what science calls a singularity. That if the universe was put in reverse, it would come back to a singularity to which people like you and me call nothing. What mathematicians say is a mathematical nothing. That there was no time, there was no space, nothing. That the universe once upon a time began with nothing and then there was an explosion of light and heat and then all of a sudden there was everything. That's what science says and coincidentally that's also what the scriptures say. In the beginning, God said, Let there be light, and there was an explosion of energy. And all of a sudden, out of nothing came everything. And John says, But here's what you need to know. On the other side of nothing, which science can't go, nothing, there's no physics, there's no chemistry. At nothing, there's no laws that govern physics or chemistry. The laws of physics and chemistry came into being on the other side of nothing. And that's as only as far as science can go. Science can only take us back to the moment after nothing. Because after there's no laws, science can't observe and science can't predict. There's no such thing as science within nothing. But John says, on the other side of nothing is God. The explanation. If the universe is one gigantic effect... There must be a cause, an uncaused first cause. Something that exists outside the time-space continuum that Einstein teaches us about. That the uncaused first cause must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, in order to create something that results in time and space and mass. (laughs) And science and scripture share the same narrative in many ways. Now, there's two options if you're not a believer. Either you have to believe that no one took nothing and created everything, or that someone made something out of nothing. You tell me which one's more logical. Not which one's more comfortable. Is it more logical to think that no one took nothing and made something, or that someone made something out of nothing? If the universe is in effect, there had to be a cause. And John says, his name is Jesus. Robert Jastrow, he was the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute. He was also a successor for Edwin Hubble at the California Space Observatory. He said this, he said, the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. He said, the chain of events leading to man commence suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone else we call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. And John, John. 2,000 years ago, he's laying down his pen thinking, duh. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that he, Jesus, was with God in the beginning, and through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Did you know that 100 billion stars exist in an average galaxy? 100 billion stars exist in the average galaxy. Do you know that there are 100 million known galaxies in space? We can't even fathom that. Einstein, his theory was that we have only yet touched, that we have only been able to observe one billionth, one billionth of theoretical space that's out there. And that means that there's probably somewhere along the lines of 10 octillion stars in the space that is out there. And again, it makes our eyes cross and it's like, so what? I prefer something a little more practical, Trevor. This is, this, is, this is so practical, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. Do you know that 10 octillion is 10 with 27 zeros behind it? Do you know that 1,000 thousands is a million, and 1,000 millions is a billion, and 1,000 billions is a trillion, and 1,000 trillions is a quadrillion, and 1,000 quadrillions is a quintillion, and 1,000 quintillions is a sextillion, and 1,000 sextillions is a septillion, and 1,000 septillions is an octillion? John said, he's bigger than what you think. He's greater than what you've been told. He's timeless, he's spaceless, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. In the beginning of beginnings, he was there, he was with God, he was God. All things, things you can see, things you can't see, they were created by him. Do you not think you can trust your life to him? If you can trust the universe to him. Are you kidding me? So John, he sets this up to say this, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The timeless, spaceless God that created time and space stepped into time and space, and at the fullness of time, in the right place, in a little village called Bethlehem, the word became flesh and was laid in a manger and was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That the baby in the manger is the logos. He is the designer behind the design. He is the intelligence behind the intelligent design. He is the timeless, he is the spaceless, immaterial, invisible God, which has become visible in time and space, in the person, of Jesus. Philip Yancey said it this way, it is as though the artist who has painted the masterpiece has stepped into his own creation. And John said, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The prophets had told Israel that the glory of God had departed the nation. But that night, that first Christmas night, angels showed up to shepherds in the field and the glory of God returned and said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all the people for tonight. This day is born in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. John said, I was there. I saw his glory. I watched him heal the sick. I watched him raise the dead. I watched him die and come back to life. It's the greatest story ever told because it is the truest and the oldest story ever known. At Christmas, the timeless, faceless God who created The world stepped into time and space in order to redeem the world. That should fill you with wonder. That should fill this season with meaning. That this awesomely large, incredibly, infinitely powerful God stepped into our world. And let's make it personal. The timeless, faceless God who created you stepped into time and space in order to redeem you. Jesus is just not the central figure of history. John would say he is the central figure of eternity. He is bigger. He is stronger. He is louder. He is greater than what you've ever imagined. He deserves your best. He deserves your surrender. He deserves your allegiance. He deserves your worship. And when you follow him, you follow in the wake of an omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, creating, sustaining, redeeming God that spoke cosmos into existence, who has invited you to trust him with your life now and eternity later. John said, that's where the story of Christmas begins. No wonder the psalmist said, When I think about the sun and the moon and the stars and the works of thy finger, I ask the question, Who am I, O God, that you are mindful of me? In the beginnings of all beginnings, He was there. And after the endings of all endings, he will still be there. Heavenly Father, what John gives us is weighty. It's almost beyond grasp, but that is the point. What kind of God would you be if we could grasp you? What kind of God would you be if we could contain you? in our finite boxes, within our imaginations. God, you supersede all that we can think and imagine. You are greater and you are stronger and you are bigger than what we could ever know. And you deserve our best. You deserve our surrender. You deserve all that we have. For you created us and you stepped into time and space to redeem us from our sin in Jesus' name.